Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We've got an outstanding panel of journalists on the show today. And so I want to get right to them uh, to begin our conversation. Lots happening in political news around the state uh, today. Um, We start with my Wednesday partner on the show, Atlanta Journal-Constitution political reporter Greg Bluestein, who has also become an analyst for NBC News, various platforms of NBC News, and, of course, is the author of Flipped, his book on how the 2020 election unfolded. But, Greg, I want to start with something uh, very different because you're a big, big baseball fan. And Sam Burmistaw sent me a note a few minutes ago pointing out that today is 68 years since Hank Aaron made his major league debut with the Milwaukee Braves on April 13th. 1954, he played in a game against the Cincinnati Reds, and he went 0 for 5 in a 9-8 loss uh, to Cincinnati. Greg, there's a career that went in a very different direction quite quickly. Yeah, and a reminder that, you know, baseball is a long season. Just because there's some struggles early in the season doesn't mean that it, it does not a career make. So I'm already enjoying the Braves, uh, the Braves opening couple days, and last night I even watched to the very bitter end of the Braves' big victory over the Nats. Yeah, big win. I, I've said on this show any number of times, I think one of the greatest privileges I've had since I moved to Georgia so many years ago was getting to know Hank Aaron just a little bit, enough to say, gosh, I kind of know this guy. He was a, a remarkable uh, person, and it's nice to remember him uh, today. Riley Bunch is here. She's a public policy reporter for Georgia Public Broadcasting. Um, how are you doing, Riley? You've had a chance to rest up after the session. You're ready to go. you got news stories you're pursuing left and right. You know, you always think that there's going to be a couple days off right after session ends and things will be quiet, but that is not the case at all with campaigning just really picking up. We saw legislators at Kemp's event yesterday, and they said, we were at the session seven days ago. So if that's any indication of how things are going to go. Yeah, well, we're glad you could be with us today. Adam Van Brimmer is uh, back with us as well, editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News. Um, Adam, a little later in the show, we're going to talk about a, a story that you wrote, an opinion piece, about an episode that happened in the Georgia legislature in 1868 that until I read your piece, I knew nothing about. Um, that's just a tease because I want to talk about it. You, you point out that many people thought the 2022 session was uh, a really, if, if you don't like the Republican uh, ideology that came forward in the session, that that was pretty bad. It was nothing compared to what happened in 1868. And we'll talk about it in a little while. But how are you in the meantime, Adam? I'm very well, uh, Bill. And yes, it is important. We're going to set the stage right now. That was Democrats that did that in 1868, just yeah. so I don't start to get my phone blowing up from people uh, <laughs> uh, saying that. But it's a, 
It's good to be with you. I, I to hear what Greg and Riley is. It's it's a thrill, and uh, you know, I know last week they were burning the midnight oil at the state house. I was sitting on the screen porch with two TVs going, one watching the national championship game and one watching the house session. And as soon as Ralston called Sonny die. I was out like a light, so I just wanted to rub that in just a little bit <laughs> to, the, to my two colleagues who work much, much harder. That's the, that's the price of living in Atlanta and not 250 miles away. There you go. Um, we're really happy also that Leroy Chapman is back with us. Uh, he's the uh, managing editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Leroy, I asked you before the show whether Bluestein has become completely insufferable <laughs> since all the attention he's gotten for his book, and you say he's... The same old, humble Greg Bluestein. He hasn't gone Hollywood on us yet. And uh, <laughs> I, I think one of the, the best things about Greg's book is that uh, he was kind enough to put me in it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be with us today, Leroy. All right, let me, I think um, uh, we should start with uh, uh, the big story today, which is um, Governor Kemp signed the bill that allows Georgians from the de- minute he signed the bill, it went into effect immediately, uh, to carry concealed weapons without a permit. Um, Greg, before we talk about uh, the impact of this uh, legislation and the, the law, let's listen to what Governor Kemp said during a, a brief news conference. Riley, you captured his audio on this. Let's listen, and then we'll talk about it. So I think when you poll every day, Georgians, they're scared. I mean, look, people don't have to carry if they don't want to. But this is a constitutional authority that people have, and they certainly shouldn't have a piece of paper from the government to be able to legally carry a weapon. You know, you're still going to have to go through background uh, background checks and stores just like this when you purchase a firearm. All the laws that have all, always been in place about who can carry a weapon, who can't, don't change. This just simply allows you not to have to get a piece of paper to legally carry. Uh, Greg Bluestein, um this is a promise that Brian Kemp made in his original campaign for governor uh, back in 2018 that he would uh, uh, sign this into law at some point. But he put it off uh, until the final session of what may be his first term, certainly, and maybe his only term. Um, what changed his mind and what's the history leading up to the signing yesterday? Yeah, I mean, first of all, this is not just a simple change. This is a dramatic uh, victory for Second Amendment advocates, for, for the pro-gun groups, um, and for Republicans who, who have made this a, a priority for a long time. Um, you know, the, the governor used his support for con- what he calls constitutional carry, what we call permitless carry, um, uh, to help him emerge from that crowded Republican primary back in 2018. If you remember way back when, even Casey Cagle, who was then the frontrunner, the lieutenant governor, did not in- initially support this legislation. Uh, at the time, a lot of Republicans, mainstream and conservative Republicans, um, felt it went too far. They, they saw it as, um, as, as too, uh, too expansive as a, as a proposal. Um, Kemp's support for it um, and, his, of course, his famous Jake Gunn ad um, helped him uh, stand out from his other Republican primary opponents and get into a runoff against Casey Hegel. But he did not put his capital behind it until now. Um, he has supported other initiatives over the years. In 2019, maybe his biggest push was for the uh, anti-abortion legislation. Um, but it was only right now that he is putting his capital behind it. And you've seen the argument change from one about hunting and being sportsmanlike 
to now being public safety. And when asked about it, by, when we asked the governor about it, he says that it was the pandemic. He said it was the, the protests for social justice that rocked Atlanta back in 2020 that helped uh, uh, sharpen that shift and that now, only now did he have the votes to push this through. Riley, there are those who would also say that uh, another reason that he uh, stepped up the pace of this is his the primary challenge he's gotten from David Perdue, who is certainly uh, running even to the right of Brian Kemp, if you can imagine that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's a reality that we saw all through session, not just on the um, constitutional carry permanent carry bill that is now law, right? You know, Kemp had set forth a, a whole slew of legislative priorities to curry to a more uh, far-right base ahead of this 24 primary because he is up against Purdue, who has pointed to constitutional carry in the past as something that the governor hadn't acted on, right? So it's something that we've seen along with, you know, his initiatives in, in schools, the, the, quote, critical race theory bills and um, the transgender measure that we saw at the last minute in the legislature. And I think yesterday was a a good taste of the weeks going forward, how Kemp is going to use these bill signings um, to kind of launch different policy aspects of his campaign that might push him forward ahead of his opponents in the primary. Leroy, I think it's possible to be a little uncertain exactly what this law now does. I mean, the governor points out that you still have to go through a background check if you buy a gun from a store, um, that, that other measures remain in place. Um, but but for whatever reason, uh, this bill and law now has been far more controversial um, among not just Democrats, but polling shows there are many Republicans who opposed this. Yeah, I mean, there, there are concerns. And if you think about this, you know, during the pandemic, uh, you know, a lot of guns were bought. Uh, and if you think about what law enforcement is concerned about, uh, they're concerned about more people carrying their guns, putting them in their cars, leaving them there, and those guns being stolen. So what happens then is that when you've got more illegal guns that are in circulation because uh, those guns were left in cars, stolen, and wind up in the wrong hands, um, there is a, a pretty credible argument that we might actually be doing more to maybe endanger the public because uh, you, you see that. And then if you talk to law enforcement folks, they'll say, well, uh, that, you know, it's, it's human to sometimes even r- with responsible people to maybe be careless, but also too, um, the number of times that you may pick up your, your weapon now that you don't need a permit, you know, it might be that uh, exchange that many of us make because we meet someone for quick trip because we are selling something or buying something on offer up or Craigslist. <laughs> and that weapon that's left in your console now, uh, perhaps, when you drive to work or, or, or go in town, uh, that weapon may wind up in the hands of someone who doesn't get it. So there is a legitimate concern here about the public safety aspect, and we really don't know exactly what the impact will be, but that's something that we, we intend to watch pretty closely. Adam? It's a very sad commentary, I think, on the electorate and how the Second Amendment is viewed now, that stuff like this has become such a driver that it will be rolled out during an election year to try to fire up the base. And, and that's what happened here. I mean, let's make no bones about it. This, 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 this law doesn't change a whole lot of things other than just stirring people up. And here we are at a time in our society, and especially here in Savannah, where gun violence is out of control. And 
at least here, everywhere you drive, you see uh, yard signs like campaign signs that say, lock your car. And the lock your car motto is about people leaving firearms and guns and guns being stolen out of cars. Everybody, I shouldn't say everybody, that's too broad. A lot of people carry guns now for whatever reason. And it's just, it, it, you look at something like this and it just sends, it just sends a message that uh, almost like a wild west message is you better be carrying because everybody else is carrying and you better be able to defend yourself. And I think it really puts law enforcement in a tough spot and it puts a lot of other people in a tough spot. And, it, you know, I, like I said, I don't know exactly the, the, the status of things in Atlanta right now, but it, it, Savannah's rough. We've had six officer-involved shootings within the city of Savannah since December. In that brief period of time, our police officers have felt threatened enough, either by people carrying guns or carrying knives. The last, this last weekend, it was, it was a shiv that, that people are being very, very aggressive with them with firearms or with weapons, and we're having shootings. And I just look at this, and, and you, you look at those headlines in the paper, and then you look at this permitless carry, constitutional carry law that's passed, and what are you going to do? You know, you're, you're, you almost feel like you have to arm yourself. And I think that's really, really sad because that's just that, – that to me is – there's no gray area anymore, and it's really not a good thing for, for us in our community. Um, Greg, uh, uh, clearly there were Democrats really fought hard against this bill while it was going through the General Assembly and in this long piece uh, that you wrote on this. You quoted, I thought, one of the most interesting uh, arguments from the well, uh, uh, Democrat uh, uh, Josh McLaurin, who uh, uh, made an interesting point about what happens to supporters of legislation like this. You want to share that with us? Yeah, he kind of calls it robotic liberty. <laughs> There's just this instinctive urge to keep on moving further and further um, to the right and voting for pieces of legislation that, like I said earlier, that Republicans used to be very skeptical of. Um, but in the name of liberty and in the name of freedom and in the name of energizing the conservative base in a time of a primary, because this is not just for Governor Kemp, right? This is for all the down-ticket candidates. Really, the obstacle, in, in a sense, was House Speaker David Ralston for a very long time. Um, Speaker Ralston uh, was concerned uh, about about this legislation until December of this past year, where he first indicated that he was open to it. And that kind of triggered, um, no, no pun intended, but that kind of opened the door uh, to pushing this legislation more aggressively from, from Governor Kemp and his allies. But, you know, this is seen as, uh, as a must do, must pass for a lot of conservative activists, even if they don't say gun rights is their top issue. Sick usually you know, five or ten percent of people of, of Republicans say it's one of their leading priorities. But it, it is that it is seen as that uh, important for conservative lawmakers to fend off primary challenges. Uh, Riley, the quote that Bluestein has in his article from McLaurin in the Well is this: "Quote every Democrat who spoke from the Well tonight flipped one of your seats on the message that the public doesn't want stuff like this." McLaurin said, scanning the chamber, check the list. That is an interesting observation, Riley. That's definitely an interesting observation. I think he has a point. You know, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll on this said that 70 percent of voters um, and adults don't want this bill, right? But I, I, well, now law, 
but I want to draw an interesting comparison when we talk about, you know, this passing this session. Last session, there was a moment on Sine Die where um, Representative Mandy Ballinger was up at the well trying to get House Speaker David Ralston to call a bill that would expand gun reciprocity, reciprocity laws um, in other states. And he wouldn't call it. And this is right on the heels of the Atlanta spa shootings. Um, and it was just such a different time. And fast forward to now, when we have this argument that we're hearing um, from Republicans about, you know, spike in crime and, and COVID causing all of this concern is very different from where we were in a year ago. And uh, Kemp was asked about this, too. He's like, said that he didn't have the votes in the legislature before. Whether that's true or not, it's just an interesting comparison from where we were last year. Um, Riley, while the ball's in your court, let's move on to another aspect of this story. Uh, David Perdue, um, David Perdue, who seems to be struggling in his effort to defeat uh, Kemp for the Republican gubernatorial nomination, yesterday attacked Kemp for not working on this bill much sooner, uh, but then went on to also uh, make very critical comments about the, a law enforcement agency, the Georgia State Patrol. Talk to us a little bit about that. Let's start that part of this conversation. Yeah, so there was a press conference yesterday morning, you know, kind of kicked off the counter-programming to Kemp's um, bill signing later in the day, and it was um, former Senator David Perdue, and he you know, he called it about crime and addressing constitutional carry, you know, accusing the governor of not doing it sooner and things like that. But he also went on kind of a, a, a long, long talk about some other things, too. Right. He brought up Buckhead, the city of Buckhead, not getting a vote. He brought up cracking down on on immigration and, you know, working with ICE to, uh, to in, uh, increase those efforts. And and then he brought up this point about the Georgia State Patrol. And I'd love to get Greg's insight on this because I, I was kind of thrown off by it a little bit. But he um, basically criticized the state of the Georgia State Patrol right now, saying that, that the morale is so low, we don't have enough officers. He mentioned calling in the National Guard. to say If he were governor, he'd do a state of emergency and called in the National Guard um, to support the Georgia State Patrol. So I, I might toss that to Greg because I'm very curious <laughs> on what he thought about that whole thing. Yeah, you don't often see Republicans who are running on a law and order message like David Perdue criticize a law enforcement agency, especially one that is a that if he wins would would be in charge of protecting him and safeguarding the state capitol. But that's what David Perdue did when he said that the the uh, the size of the Georgia State Patrol was deteriorating. Question whether it was still an elite. Um, police unit. Look, it, it's had its problems, including a cheating scandal that, that we extensively covered um, a few years ago. Um, but still, in the middle of a campaign primary season, we don't hear that very often, or if ever, from a, from a leading statewide candidate. And you know, this, this shows you, this kind of tells you everything. Usually, um, a governor, Governor Kemp, would not want to be knocked off message at all when he's passing, when he's signing this big pro-gun bill into law. But when I asked him about David Perdue's remarks, he went on an extended monologue about that as well. Um, really, you know, I mean, it wasn't just scripted or anything like that. He was really frustrated and, and probably infuriated by uh, David Perdue's comments about an agency that he said has worked hand in hand with him um, to stop violence in Atlanta and, and elsewhere. Well, Adam and then Leroy, let's listen to just a little bit of what Greg is talking about. Here's how Brian Kemp responded to what David Perdue had said. 
Do we have that? We don't have that sound? Okay, I thought we did. Um, essentially, what? So, uh, Greg, you were there. What did what did uh, uh, Kemp say, basically? Well, he said that um, Dave, while David Perdue was sleeping, um, while David Perdue was uh, while David Perdue was sleeping, um, he was uh, working with the Georgia State Patrol uh, to to protect the state capitol. Because remember, protesters were surrounding the state capitol and protesting some of the. Uh, Confederate uh, and, and statues of segregationist leaders, um, and also when it was helping to devise a plan to stop those protests from getting out of control, in, 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 the, in the governor's words. Um, and he said that there's no better example of, of hard work and you know, law and order than the Georgia State Patrol. So he took, he took offense to that. He took it personally. And again, the fact that you know, he was taking some time out of touting this pro-gun bill to also attack his opponent kind of says it all to me. Yeah, Adam, um, it, it, this, this sort of attack does, I think, uh, make it clearer to all of us that, that Purdue is struggling to find something to grab hold of that will give him some momentum in his race against Kemp. Yes, Adam? Yes, and I, I want to preference my comments by making clear to everybody here what I do. I am an opinion writer. I am a journalist, but I am paid to give commentary. So I say that before I say this, David Perdue has zero credibility. David Perdue is desperate. When David Perdue goes before a crowd in commerce and propagates a big lie and does all of the other, he goes, he, he protests Rivian. What kind of Republican candidate protests an economic development program, an economic development project that's going to bring 7,000 jobs? He is desperate, and any kind of reputation, any kind of anything that he had coming out of his service in the U.S. Senate is gone. And this is what we're seeing with a lot of these candidates that are the Trump candidates. And David Perdue, we can expect more of this, right? Uh, looking at Greg, right? We're going we're gonna to expect he's going to try to get anything he can to differentiate himself from Kemp. Kemp has done an amazing job of getting on Trump's bad side but still doing all of the things that have kept him uh, at, at least, if not popular, at least with a, a dose of respect with the base. And David Perdue has made a miscalculation when he got into this race, and he continues to make more and more miscalculations, uh, and he's going to keep well, doing it between now and May the 24th. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Leroy. No uh, the AJC, like GPB News, we're both continuing to cover David Perdue in the most um, – uh, uh, balanced way we possibly can. That's not to say, Leroy, that Purdue isn't struggling. Yeah, you know this is this is a gaff, um, and I don't know exactly what price will be paid for it. But you know there is certainly a way that Purdue can make that point without alienating law enforcement, because the way he said it, um, it, it really the way it, he said it, and the way it's reverberating. Uh, certainly a part of the Republican base, a part of, you know, certainly reliable Republican voters uh, in the law enforcement community. I may take some offense to this, and I think that uh, the governor did a pretty effective job at uh, making the case that, you know, the men and women who put themselves at risk um, should be offended by this, and that's what he should do uh, in, as someone in a, in a somewhat competitive race. But uh, I'd be interested to see uh, if, if this winds up coming through. Uh, we've got some polling that's going to go in the field, uh, I 
I guess, any day now. And I'd be interested in, in how um, Purdue is perceived uh, after this. Riley? You know, I just want to jump in and do a really quick kind of like journalism note on this. So when Purdue held this press conference yesterday, it was outside the Georgia State Capitol in Atlanta. And Purdue has historically held a majority of his press availabilities um, in rural areas, right on the campaign trail outside of Atlanta. And, you know, we were all kind of standing there afterward remarking like, oh, we, did, we, we were in Atlanta. We drove 10 minutes and got to see him today, right? So I wonder if this will impact kind of um, our access to him moving forward. Okay. Well, we'll watch and see how all that turns out. Hey, why don't we do this? Um, Let's get to the first break of the show. But when we come back, um, let's continue our conversation about this Republican governor's race, uh, because um, I think there's an an internal poll that we talked about a bit yesterday from the Kemp campaign that suggests Kemp is close to winning without a runoff. It's an internal poll. How much credibility should we give it? What does it tell us about how that race is shaping up at this point? We'll do all that and more after these messages. It's Political Rewind Newsletter Day. If you're not a subscriber yet and want to get uh, uh, our newsletter in your inbox every Wednesday, just go to uh, gpb.org slash newsletters and you can sign up. We'd love to have you uh, join us. Um, Greg Bluestein is with us, Riley Bunch, uh, Adam Van Brimmer, and Leroy Chapman uh, talking about the news of the day. Um, Greg, uh, yesterday the jolt reported on an internal poll that showed Governor Kemp in a pretty strong position, stronger position than the public polling has shown him to be in in his uh, fight against David Perdue. So clearly this poll was leaked. It happens all the time. Um, and, and a poll like that is leaked because it puts the candidate look in a much more favorable position. First of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the poll reveals, and then I'd like to get the panel to weigh in on all this. Yeah, so the poll reveals what a lot of other recent polls have revealed, which is that the governor is double digits ahead of David Perdue um, in a strong position heading into the final weeks of this primary. And it's important, too, because it's one of the first polls we've seen since that Donald Trump rally that Adam mentioned a couple of uh, moments ago. It was uh, in late March up in northeast Georgia. Um, uh, you know, we we always have a caveat when we're writing about these internal polls, which says that, hey, you take these with a grain of salt. Um, this is We would not put an internal poll, let's say, on the front page of the AJC necessarily, right? But for the blog, for the insider blog, which we wrote it in, um, it's, a, it's more appropriate, um, especially with that sort of grounding. But what it does, and it's from a respected polling outfit called Signal, mm-hmm. um, and what it does is it gives us a better idea of, A, you know, how Kemp's allies, because this came from an outside group working on Kemp's behalf, are feeling uh, going into this final stretch. But B, some of the vulnerabilities still, um, you know, the very fact that the governor's not above 50 percent right now um, says uh, says something about about where he stands in this race. Um, and frankly, also, you know, of course, David Perdue, um, we've seen him in the 30s and 40s in some of these polls. And he's still within striking distance. You know, that's why, that's why we were saying we, we, have, we never count him out. We have no idea what the Trump electorate will look like. We have no idea what the general electorate, <laughs> overall electorate will look in May. Um, but the fact that he is still behind in these polls consistently starts to shape, you know, the, this image and this narrative. And it's why we're hearing 
and it, it helps inform us on why we're hearing David Perdue take the steps for, that he's taken that we just talked about in the last segment, which is uh, what Kemp's campaign says, like a throwing a spaghetti against the wall strategy, seeing what might stick. And right now it's attacking or criticizing the Georgia State Patrol and saying he would have he would have gone more aggressively to expand gun rights. All those issues um, are becoming part of that narrative because they know and we know he's behind in the polls. We just don't know how far really behind in the polls he is, and we don't know what the shape of the electorate will look like. Well, uh, Leroy, one of the things that's important about the internal signal poll from the Kemp campaign is that Greg's right. It does show him with a double-digit lead over Purdue. So did the Emerson poll, Emerson College poll that was released last week. But here's the big difference. The Emerson poll only showed uh, uh, Kemp at 43 percent compared to Purdue's 32 percent. Um, that's far short of what he needs to win without a runoff. The, the internal poll, the signal poll, has Kemp at 49 percent, coming very close to having enough to win without a runoff. And we should remind people, there are five candidates in this gubernatorial contest. And at this point, it's becoming increasingly clear that David Perdue's biggest hope is to force Kemp into a runoff, not to overtake him and win outright. So that's why this internal poll is even more important from a Kemp point of view, yes? Uh, you're, you're right. And, and I think what, what Greg touched on, too, is that uh, the reason you leak this is that you want to frame the narrative. You want to see if you can, you know, dictate what the reporting would be like. And if the reporting is that he's on the cusp of winning outright, then that uh, is something that is, you know, clearly favorable to the governor. But, but also, we don't know. And we, uh, the AJC, uh, with our partners over at the University of Georgia, we are going into the field of polling uh, any day now. And we'll get a sense, too. And uh, I know there are other polls uh, that will also uh, look at uh, this primary race. And I think that uh, if you look at the polls taken as, as a sum, and, and it certainly polls are a snapshot of a period of, of time, but uh, I think you'll, you'll get some clarity uh, over time, especially with some of the public polls that have really good sample size, sizes and uh, that, are, that are professionally done and done with, with some independence. So all that said, um, you know, where, where the truth lies, it's probably that uh, the governor doesn't quite have enough uh, to have a majority. But uh, I think one consistency is, is that he's ahead. Riley, do you, do you think my point is correct, that at this point Purdue's best hope is to force a runoff? You know, I think this is why we have journalists out in the field, right? We're hearing anecdotally from people evidence that does support this. Um, at, at the Trump rally in Commerce talking to voters, there were a lot of voters who weren't really sure about Purdue, uh, were leaning toward Governor Kemp, you know, on the fence. And I think it really is going to come down to a game of inches like we're seeing in um in the Georgia politics right now. And I, I, you know, my prediction is that, that there will maybe a runoff, you know, it, it might come down to that, but it really truly is kind of a wait and see at this point. Adam? A runoff is a scary thought, isn't it? Uh, you know, we want to get this one, <laughs> this one done with and, and then start gearing toward the fall. But it, we came pretty close to a runoff, well, in the general election, Back in 2018, right, it was it was just 55,000 votes, and I think that the Libertarian candidate had it even closer to that to to kick it down under 50 percent. So a runoff is certainly certainly a, a possibility. My question is is if the polls stay where they are and the public sentiment stays where they are, do we see David Perdue dialed back? Do we see maybe some 
somebody within the state impressing upon him and his crew that, hey, it is time to, you know, you've lost this thing. It is time to kind of coalesce and bring the party together ahead of the primary and start looking ahead to the fall. I kind of doubt that. I think the grudge, I think the, the Trump grudge against Kemp is such that, that he'll get, he'll get Purdue to stay in for a long time. But I'd be curious to get some of uh, my colleagues here's thoughts on that whole idea. Well, Greg, I, I do want to just uh, one more point about this part of the conversation. Um, one, one reason, certainly, that Brian Kemp can't relax uh, and, and assume that he is likely to win um, is what happened to him at, at a Fulton County Republican gathering last weekend. Um, he came to speak in front of a group of Republicans. Many of them cheered him on. But at the same time, there was a dissenting group that uh, was angry with him called him out at one point. He was called a liar. So talk about that element of the party. And that was at the Fulton County GOP, not exactly a hotbed for like sort of far right extremism, right? Um, So look, we we, we saw that throughout the last year. We've seen him get booed at gatherings. We've seen him get heckled. We've seen him, you know, with with basically people turning their backs to him at Republican events. Um, There is still that that pro-Trump element um, that A, he'll have to contend with for the primary, but B, even if he wins the nomination, it'll still be a recurring theme all the way through through November and maybe a December runoff. Um, so, you know, let's not think about that far to, to ahead right now. Um, but certainly this is an issue that continues um, to, to, to dog the governor. And, and let me be clear, too. Um, he, even though his poll numbers are strong right now, he is not taking the, the foot off the gas right now. I mean, I asked him up at a stop a couple days ago up in Dahlonega about his campaign strategy, and he goes, there's two ways to run, unopposed and scared, and I'm running scared. So that yeah. is why you're seeing him aggressively take to the campaign trail and have events, you know, every, multiple events every day. He's out in South Georgia right now, middle Georgia right now, in South Georgia, middle of this week, for a bunch of campaign stops there. Um, okay, uh, why don't we do this? Why don't we get our final break of the show out of the way and come back and uh, talk, take on a number of other topics with this panel. You're listening to Political Rewind. Glad to have you back with us for uh, Political Rewind. Uh, before we continue with the panel, just let me give you a quick look at what's coming up on the show. Um, tomorrow, we're going to hear from uh, two legislators, a uh, Democrat and a Republican, uh, Senator Kim Jackson, the Democrat from Stone Mountain, Representative Chuck F. Stration, Republican from Decula, um, along with our journal, a couple of journalists on our panel, Stephen Fowler and Kevin Riley, the editor of the AJC. And we'll talk about how these folks think uh, the session is set, has set things up for the campaigns to come in the weeks ahead. And then on Friday, we're going to do something very different. Friday, there's an interesting convergence of holidays that doesn't happen very often. Friday for Christians, of course, is Good Friday. For Jews, it is the first night of Passover, and it is just about the midway point for Muslims of Ramadan. And so we're going to have a panel of faith leaders. Um, we're going to have Kevin Muriel, the pastor at uh, Cascade United Methodist Church. We're going to have Rabbi Rachel Bregman, who is a Reform rabbi in Brunswick, Georgia. And then we're going to have community leader Sumaya Khalifa, who is an, um, um, uh, one of the Muslims who does more work in trying to bring 
people of various faiths together and trying to help the community understand Islam. I'm really looking forward to that conversation and how they see their congregations dealing with a complex world today. So that's Friday. Um, in the meantime, we've got Adam Van Brimmer, Greg Bluestein, Leroy Chapman, and Riley, Riley Bunch continuing with us today. Um, Riley, you know, I think people would, would make a fair point when they say we spend an awful lot of time talking about Republican campaigns right now and not so much Democrats. Part of that is because Stacey Abrams is running unopposed and all the action is kind of in the Republican primary. Um, but Stacey Abrams is out there on the campaign trail and and getting the opportunity without opposition to get as positive a message as possible across. Right, Riley? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we've seen Stacey Abrams launch her campaign with a series of events and focus on Medicaid, right? And now I think that this kind of back and forth in between the Republican primary opponents has given her a little bit of leeway to branch out into additional policy um, platforms that she's going to be running her campaign on. You know, Greg reported that there was an ad series, a recent ad series she released that focused on small businesses, um, which is something that may appeal to a more moderate or independent voters as well, as opposed to the, the kind of Medicaid expansion argument, too. Um, so watching her, you know, slowly roll out her policy platform is very interesting, especially when there is this huge focus on the Republican primary for governor right now. Um, Greg, she has a new ad uh, that emphasizes her business, uh, 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 the business side of her work. Let's listen to it. And then I'll ask you, Greg, um, and the other panelists, why this ad now? When Stacy and I first met, we seemed like opposites. Laura talks to anyone. Stacy listens to everyone. Laura's an independent. Stacy's a Democrat. Laura's more Star Wars. Stacy's Star Trek. We don't always agree, but our differences, they're our superpower. We built a company together to finance other small businesses. And help them save and grow jobs. That's how we're going to grow Georgia's economy. That's why you ought to be governor. We can agree on that. <laughs> Uh, Greg, what's the thinking behind that, a spot emphasizing her business skills? Yeah, so in 2018, one of her main issues, main missions was to lock down the progressive core of the party, right, to, to make herself an icon to them, and, and she did. Um, there's no doubt right now that she is this sort of liberal leading figure, not just in Georgia, but nationally. Well, now that she's done that, she has no opposition. She has no worry on her left flank at all. So now she's, she's, she's aiming towards a broader base of electorate because she, she can watch the GOP infighting. Um, she's hoping for a runoff between David Perdue and Brian Kemp right now, and because it gives her more time to consolidate that support um, and to and to reach the middle. And that's why her her opening message was basically summed up in two words: expand Medicaid. And now we're seeing more from her talking about her business background that she's more than um, you know the voting rights advocate and the leader of Fair Fight and a politician. She's trying to tell folks about that business experience and it's and it's it's warts and all i mean there, there's she's done a number of podcasts and and, me, and media interviews about how business failures in her past as well um businesses and startups that she's that she founded that didn't go well including with her partner there that you just heard um so you know it, it's a it's a checkered past in some sense but also i think her campaign feels like it gives her more context more more character behind her bid that she's not just a politician Hey, Leroy, because you're the managing editor of the paper, I, I think it'd be interesting to hear how you think about what I said a minute ago, that um, right now there's so much focus on Republican contests 
um, that um, it, it's we don't give quite as much attention to what's going on with Stacey Abrams. And I'm curious, as managing editor, how you see that unfold at the paper and and how you deal with that. Yeah, so, so it's one of those things, uh, Bill, that uh, because of what's going on in a very competitive GOP race, that it does take a lot of resources. So Stacey Abrams, uh, certainly uh, without opposition, uh, she is running a campaign, and she's running uh, toward November. Uh, there are some things that she's wanting to accomplish, and I think uh, Greg did a good job of framing what this ad campaign means. And I think as you look forward, though, I think we can tell readers that, you know, there's a lot that's necessary out of this. I mean, Stacey Abrams, uh, in order for her to win, she's going to have to win the suburbs. She's going to have to win some folks in the middle, uh, as few folks as those are. Uh, and uh, the polling is pretty clear that people worry about the economy. And if you look at where the, where the landmines are for an Abrams campaign, uh, it is going to be the economy because uh, that's going to be defined very largely in this midterm by national Democrats. And the pain that everyone's seeing with inflation and what's been happening with the supply chain and people uh, ex- expressing their frustration uh, over uh, high prices and the inability to get essential goods, uh, that's, that's going to be uh, probably not going to uh, eliminate it by the time we get to November. And so uh, this is laying the groundwork to say that uh, she's up to that task and also trying to distinguish herself, too, as being someone who can handle the, the economy. So uh, what we're doing is we're keeping an eye on uh, what her messaging is, since there is no opponent, no foil. But, but you know, her messaging really is very much aimed at building or toward that voter that she knows she's going to have to convince uh, come November. At, sorry, Adam, uh, it's a real luxury for Stacey Abrams. Uh, to be able to get out there, define herself right now without fear that she's going to be attacked, certainly by a David Perdue and a Brian Kemp, except, you know, here and there, because right now they're focused on each other. Um, uh, And and that's the number one uh, goal, I think, in most campaigns is define yourself before the opposition defines you. Uh, That doesn't mean that a storm isn't coming down the road, uh, Adam. Yeah, that's exactly right, and it is a luxury for her to have that. But at the same time, this this line of stuff talk this is this is a hard sell for her because when I talk to people around here that are Kemp supporters, the number one reason they are Kemp supporters is because of his focus on small businesses. Uh, they talk about you know all of his small business initiatives. They talk about him uh, pushing to reopen early, which, uh, in their opinion, has really led to Georgia's quick economic rebound and to try to carve your niche uh, as a business person if you're running against Brian Kemp, it's a tough sell. Uh, Obviously, as Leroy kind of pointed to, is the Democrats are – the Democrats, the the economy struggling, and the Democrats are going to take the blame for that. So if she can somehow kind of sculpt the message of, yeah, I'm a Democrat, but I'm also a small business person, and I – and I know that the struggles small business people face, and I'm going to do whatever I can if I'm in the, the governor's mansion to try to help small business people. But when you get to the general, and, and I'm assuming here, but if you're in the general and you're against Brian Kemp, that's going to be really, really hard sell, uh, especially for for anybody that is in the middle that maybe leans a little bit to the right, because I think Kemp has already captured that, uh, that demographic. Uh, Riley, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is more than happy to uh, put a focus of attention on Stacey Abrams. Um, he had an, I think, I, I, 
strange kind of remark the other day. We'll listen to a minute of it. But what Ron DeSantis says is if Stacey Abrams is elected governor of Georgia, you can expect a cold war between Florida and Georgia. Let's hear how we put it. We got a little bit going on in Georgia this week with the Masters Golf Tournament. Big deal. I just want you to know we really appreciate our Georgians. Um, if Stacey Abrams is elected governor of Georgia, I just want to be honest, that will be a cold war between Florida and Georgia at that point. I mean, I can't have Castro to my south and Abrams to my north. That'd be a disaster. Ron DeSantis, Riley. I have to admit um, that when I uh, read that we were going to be discussing this today, I was thinking, Googling quickly, like, what would this impact, right? You know, what, yeah. what would be the, the state-to-state relations that, that, that he's talking about, right? And, you know, I'm thinking about ag, I'm thinking about business, but it is it is an interesting comment and an interesting way to look at things. I, um, I would say that it also, you know, one of Stacey Abrams' issues, too, going forward and things that she's going to have to move past is her tie to the um, federal government and things that the federal government has done that um, may not bode well with voters. Uh, that was kind of, you know, that was my interpretation of things and not sure what he's really getting at, but it was an interest, interesting thing to think about. Yeah, Greg. Yeah, I mean, look, um, it's another reminder that even if Stacey Abrams hadn't run, she would still be on the ballot. Um, I, I wrote way back in like middle of last year how eight Republicans running for dog catcher were, were bringing her up in their campaign <laughs> rhetoric, right? Their, their mailers, things like that. And she has become, as I mentioned earlier, like, you know, in, in becoming this liberal icon, she's also become a villain to Republicans, not just in Georgia, but around the country. And that is why um, both David Perdue and Brian Kemp, if you look at their central core of their arguments, both of them say they'd be the better candidate who can defeat Stacey Abrams in November. They've, of course, they talk about policies and ideas and stances and things like that. But at the heart of their messages are, hey, I'm the one who can beat Stacey Abrams and stop her ascent to the White House. And, and that shows you just what a polarizing figure she is in Georgia politics right now. Um, with the time we have left, Adam, I mentioned at the top of the show, you wrote a piece that I found fascinating. I think it showed me I don't know as much about Georgia history as I thought I did. Um, you write about what happened in 1868 in the Georgia legislature when, for the first time, uh, African Americans, how many, 33 of them, were elected 33. to the General Assembly. Just give us a couple minutes on what happened. And, and, and by the way, it's the sort of thing that maybe under the new Georgia uh, bills couldn't be taught in Georgia schools. Right. And, and before I get into that, I, because I don't want to forget, I want to tell people, if you want to read more about this, go to standingout.com slash opinion. You'll see it on there. It's on our it's on our opinion page. But it is about the original 33. And these were the 30, the first 33 black legislators elected following the Civil War. The uh, the legislature reconstituted or, or re-got together in 1868. And uh, that 33 Black legislators had been elected, so they went to Atlanta, and they were promptly expelled by the rest of the legislature. And um, the at that point, it was Democrats. These these black lawmakers were Republicans. The the, the Democrats said the the election was fraudulent. There's no way these it sounds familiar, right? There's no way that these these 
men could have gotten elected, so we're going to we're going to go ahead and expel them. Uh, a certain number of them organized a protest march that went through South Georgia uh, a couple of weeks later, and it ended up going through Camilla, Georgia, where they were ambushed because it was very well known that they were doing this protest march. A bunch of them were killed. Other members of the original 33 were were harassed, and it, it just it was just it was a very very dark day in Georgia history, which brings us forward to now. And a local Savannah, Georgia House rep, whose name is Carl Gilliard, is a descendant of one of the original 33, uh, one that was hailed from Liberty County, so just south of here. And he, in 2019, introduced a bill that basically would say, hey, it's time we, we honored these original 33 for their courage and, and what they've meant. And the bill, he introduced it uh, two sessions ago, or no, I guess it'd be one session ago, he introduced it this session. It never really got any traction. In the middle of this session, some of his allies in the Georgia Senate got together and introduced a similar bill that called for a monument to the original 33 for some reason or another, it gained a whole lot of traction. Everybody, it, it's had something like 20 co-signers, 20 co-sponsors. It eventually made it to the Senate floor and passed uh, unanimously, 51 to zero. And it went over to the House. And going into Sine Die, it, it hadn't, obviously, we had a lot of things. The legislature had a lot of things in the last week, and they were trying to get a lot of their, their business, their, their more vital business done, and it dragged. And the bill did not make it to the floor before signing day. Uh, Representative Gilliard had talked to Speaker Ralston's staff about getting it to the floor. Of course, signing day was also the uh, was also the anniversary of uh, Martin Luther King's death. Um, go ahead, Bill. Sorry. And w- no, what? F- just real quick, because we're running out of time. Is the bill mm-hmm. still pending for for uh, well, not for next session, but what happened? Right. Uh, the bill did not make it to the floor. Sorry, I cut to the chase. Okay. It, it didn't make it to and the it floor to be, and it, it, reintroduced. Yeah, yeah, it will have to be completely reintroduced because we begin a new uh, 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 session uh, in, in January, a new biennial. Um, I wish we could talk about that a little bit more because I do think there are interesting questions about whether you can teach this chapter uh, in uh, schools across the state based on what the legislature did in terms of how you teach about race. We don't have time for that. Adam, thank you, though, for bringing that to our attention. It's a chapter of history I simply didn't know about. Um, so Adam Van Brimmer, uh, Riley Bunch, Leroy Chapman, Greg Bluestein, thank you for a terrific conversation uh, today. We're completely out of time, but we'll be back again tomorrow with another Political Rewind. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye, everybody. 